you know, if you own the property, you, you, you really need to maintain good financials uh, because you're always going to need those going forward, whether you're you know, buying, you hopefully you, you're going to have financials, solid financials that you can share with your buyer. Or if you're the buyer, you need to see them so that we can size it up and give you a, a you know, a, a fair, you know, quote, you know, that we can stand behind in the market. We want to welcome everybody back to another episode of Carried Interest. We've got a great, great guest today, Daryl Bokitas, Senior Vice President with CBRE's Wholesale Lending Division. Uh, Daryl has an extensive background in lending, specifically in multifamily, ranging you know over 10 years, uh, even 20 years, beginning in the residential space, and for lack of better terms, graduating into that commercial lending area. So we're excited to have him on. Uh, it's a unique perspective. We've talked to a lot of multifamily syndicators, uh, but Daryl is the the money guy, right? He is helping finance a lot of these projects in the one to five million dollar space. Uh, so without further ado, Daryl, please uh, just want to welcome you on board and, and hear more about how you got started in this uh, side of the industry. Yeah, sure. So thank you for having me. So you know, as mentioned, you know, you know, you, you know, years ago, actually, I, I used to. Um, uh, I was a, what we call a financial consultant at the time with Merrill Lynch I, you know, for a very short period of time, kind of right out of school for two or three years. And actually, Merrill had initiated and, and had really rolled out you know, a lending platform. This was back in the early 90s. And I kind of got interested in that a little bit um, and, and you know, worked a little bit uh, on that with Merrill, not much, but a little, and then ended up coming back to Charlotte. I was in South Florida at the time, but I'm from the Carolinas to so come back to Charlotte. And, and actually got into, you know, formally got into to residential lending. Um, it's, it was not that business where you come out of college saying, hey, I want to be a residential lender. Uh, you just kind of fall into it, you know, for the lack of a better, uh, you know, path. So I did that for probably 12 or 13 years, was actually one of the, the largest residential lenders in Charlotte. Uh, I actually worked for a real estate owned lender. Um, so it was primarily just, just residential lending at the time. Toward the latter part of, of the end of my career in residential, you know, I, I got, honestly, I got bored with it uh, and was just trying to, to really teach myself about commercial lending because there, there really was no, there's no training, there's no path. It's kind of, you, you, you learn as best you can and you really learn in the actual doing. So, you know, I, I really had, had, more or less kind of taught myself, you know, relative to, uh, uh, you know, to commercial and multifamily lending, but how I, I formally really transitioned over, I did a residential loan uh, for a, a guy who worked for a commercial lender. Uh, and he was moving and I got to know him really well and actually kind of started working, you know, left my company, started working for him and his company. Uh, and, and just really, it kind of grew from there. Uh, you know, went to, you know, we, you know, I had a, my own company uh, who did commercial lending. This was back in, you know, 08, 09, and then the, you know, the downturn in real estate, you know, and, and we went out of business just like so many people did. We had plenty of loans, but nowhere to put them, nowhere to sell them. So we just kind of, you know, withered on the vine. And over time, I actually ended up working at Wells Fargo for a while on the CMBS portfolio servicing uh, platform, which was really, it was really actually interesting. It went from the sales side, the origination side over to the servicing side. So, you know, what happens, so learned really a lot about what happens after the loan closes, you know, which as an originator, you really don't care, you know, once the loan is closed, but you know, there's, there's a lot of information to learn. 
on the servicing side, especially with commercial and multifamily loans. And it was an interesting time because you had a, a lot of you know, loans that were not performing, uh, you know, that were going into forbearance, that were going into foreclosure, even though they were a lot of those loans were actually performing, they couldn't get refinanced because, you know, the values had fallen out and they've got a $10 million loan and the property's worth eight, you know, at, at that time. So learned a, a really a great deal about, uh, about, you know, the servicing side. And, and then when the market started to clear up, you know, got back into the front end side, strictly on multifamily lending, ended up with, you know, CBRE and, and started a wholesale lending platform for CBRE uh, from the ground up. And, and primarily what my role is, is, is with CBRE is, is heading up our wholesale lending platform. So we work with, primarily work with other mortgage brokers and bankers in the market um, because we are Freddie Mac's largest seller servicer. We have been for the last, I think, 12 or 14 years now, uh, their largest seller servicer as a whole. We're also their largest affordable lender. We're their largest, you know, other types of lenders, but but we're also their largest Freddie Mac small balance lender. And small balance is considered loans for multifamily in the one to 7.5 million range. So we've been their largest lender for the last four years. Just announced uh, actually earlier this week that once again, we were the largest lender last year on Freddie's small balance side. Uh, we were the only lender to close over a billion in small balance loans uh, 2020, which was an accomplishment, you know, with COVID and, and, and all of that going on. So my group, you know, primarily functions with mortgage brokers and bankers, you know, doing wholesale lending. But in addition to that, I also do some direct lending when the opportunities arise. Uh, the great thing about CDRE, the, the fact that we are the largest lender, you know, the folks that support us, everyone, the back office personnel, so forth, tremendous amount of experience in agency lending. There's very few things we haven't seen. So we know how to navigate from application to closing much faster than, than, than any of the other you know, folks in the market. We, we're actually the number one from a timeline from application to closing, not only on volume, but timeline. Uh, so that's, it, it's quite a, a big accomplish, accomplishment. We do work, and I do work personally a lot with, you know, with, with those uh, you know, buyers that, that are you know, putting deals together on their own. We've been doing a lot of syndication deals over the last three or four years. That's, the, that's really very, very common now in the multifamily side. So we, we've done a lot of that. And it's, it's really worked out well for our group and, and CBR. Benefit to the borrowers with the largest lender. There's nothing we haven't seen. We can get you an application to closing relatively quickly, but we're also going to get you the best rate and, and make it you know, as smooth a process as can be, uh, which not everybody can say that, but we certainly can. That's excellent. And I know you're based in Charlotte right now. Where do you do most of your deals? Is it mostly local or are you bouncing around the country? It's, it's everywhere. You know, as a wholesale group, you know, I'm working with mortgage brokers and bankers nationwide. You know, I've got loans currently going in, in every corner of the country. Uh, when I'm doing more or less direct loans, the majority of them are in the Southeast, uh, just because I happen to be in this area. And sometimes I just, you know, meet people and, and so forth. Uh, but, you know, the, you know, I'm still doing loans anywhere that, uh, you know, that the need arises. It's a good thing about our group. I mean, you know, I, I'm not pigeonholed into one section of the country or one state or one market and, and have a tremendous amount of knowledge relative to all markets because we do so much and, and my group personally does so much. A lot of deals we do in Texas, Oklahoma, California, certainly a popular state right now. Uh, certainly the Southeast, Florida, the Carolinas, up North, um, you, know, uh, you know, New York and the surrounding markets, a lot up in the upper Midwest, the Ohio's, 
um, you know, Kentucky, you know, just really all corners. Arkansas closed a couple deals down there about a month ago. So it's, it's, there's not a lot of states that I haven't done alone in, and I'm still waiting to do my first in Hawaii. So I'll, I'll volunteer <laughs> the inspection on that one. <laughs> well <laughs> earned, for sure. We're all over. So, Darryl, I'm, uh, I'm Jesse, after you, please. Yeah, real quick on, on that. Uh, I don't know if they're going to have a great answer for this because of your, your answer to that, but um, do you have a typical unit size you focus on? I know you mentioned the loan size is about uh, one to seven million or one and a half to seven million. Um, and obviously in different markets that that's going to vary, but, um, are, are you guys doing, you know, more of the, the 10 unit to 20 unit, or are you getting up into the, the forties and fifties? Oh yeah. Um, well, and it's like you just said, it's, it's in large part, you know, Jesse is the market. I mean, you know, I have to deal out a, a six unit deal in California today, loan amounts $4 million. Yeah. It, that's a, an extremely high cost market. Whereas, you know, uh, you know, in the Carolinas, that $4 million loan may be a, a 50 unit property. Generally, as it, yes, it's market driven a lot, but generally we're looking at, at stuff more so in the, you know, the 20 to 80 unit range. Uh, we certainly get above 100 units. I closed last week 150 unit. I'm looking at 180 unit now. Um, but, you know, that uh 180 unit, you know, happens to be in, in South Carolina. So the purchase price is only about 13 million. Whereas if, you know, if it's in another part of the country, if it's in Dallas, which is a top market, or certainly in California, I mean, that's going to be way up there, you know, as far as price. So it, it, it's really market driven. Uh, but, you know, from a multifamily standpoint, it has to be at least five units or more. And we do five units in high cost markets, you know, like, you know, Manhattan, or, you know, that, that same loan amount might be a, an 80-unit property, you know, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Dale, you know, I, I have to ask, I truthfully have a barrage of questions because I'm in the residential space and you're in the commercial lending space. Uh, but I'll, st I'll start with this one first. If you can explain to any listeners out there the difference between wholesale lending and direct lending, you know, on CBRE's balance sheet and, you know, why the difference and you know, what type of projects... Um, will require balance sheet or direct lending versus wholesale lending. Right. Well, what CBRE does is, is, you know, we're, again, a direct seller servicer for Fannie Mae Freddie Mac. So we close those loans in the name of CBRE. They will sit on our balance sheet for two or three weeks until we sell them to Freddie and Freddie securitizes them with all their other loans. And once a month, Freddie will go out and do a securitization, you know, for 100, 200 million, whatever it may be. So it only sits on our balance sheet for a very short period of time. Um, so we're a direct lender from the standpoint of, of, and there's kind of two facets to that. We're a direct lender from the standpoint of, I will work with a borrower directly. Uh, we're a wholesale lender if another mortgage broker or banker is bringing that borrower to me. So we're functioning as, as, as wholesale. It's like, for example, on the residential side, um, you know, if you were, you know, closing a loan that ultimately you're selling off to B of A or Wells Fargo or something of that nature. Uh, whereas if you're, uh, you know, have your own warehouse line and close it in your own name, eventually you're going to sell it off, but you're considered a direct lender because you are closing it with your money. You're not going to keep it on the balance sheet for very long, two, three weeks. You want to get it off the balance sheet as quick as you can, uh, but you're considered a direct lender if you're writing the check at closing, you know, out of your account. So we are a direct lender from that standpoint with Fannie and Freddie, 
we sell that loan post-closing. And we're direct lender in the sense that we, my group, we, I mean, I do work directly with borrowers, but more often than not, it's, it's from a wholesale perspective, whereas, you know, some other mortgage broker or banker is bringing that deal to me, who is not a seller servicer of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. There's only a handful of us, you know, that are approved to do the Freddie small balance program, for example. So if, unless you have that license, you have to, to bring that to somebody like me who does, you know, have the license. And, and we happen to do the majority of business than, than any other lender with Freddie. Uh, we're number two, number three, we kind of flip-flop back and forth with Fannie. Uh, that's only because we, we choose to, to really do more business with Freddie. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it's really by choice. Both of them are great programs. We deal with both. We just happen to be the number one lender with you know, with Freddie, because that's where our focus goes to. And the small balance program is, is truly is the best program in the market right now for the smaller multifamily. And I, and I use that term really loosely because we're still talking about millions, right? Right, right. But, you know, it is small balance is considered essentially loans that are in the one to 7.5 million range. Hmm. It, it's fascinating. What I we do is, is when I am yeah. doing direct loans with a borrower, they're still getting our wholesale rate. You know, so it's, it, really? it, again, we're able to offer the, highly competitive rates in the market. It's, it's, it's rare that you're going to get a, a, we don't, we choose not to necessarily compete on rate, but you will probably get the best rate with us. Understood. You know, it's funny, in, at least in my space, it's such a smaller asset class, a hundred thousand to $3 million loan. So some of the biggest questions I get asked as a lender are what's my timeline, what's the process like, and uh, frankly, how, what's the, what are the requirements for closing? I'd like to ask you kind of those same questions because it's a way bigger space, larger loan sizes. How do those change in, in your space? Sure. So from a timeline perspective, you know, generally, and, and by the way, from a timeline perspective, we have been, you know, Freddie's number one lender from a timeline perspective for, for a number of years. Our app to close time is faster than anyone. And, and that's in large part because of my back office. Everyone is, is you know, highly trained in, in agency lending. So they know what they're looking at. Uh, and because we're Freddie's largest lender, you know, they answer the phone when we call. And so that, that's certainly a big benefit. From a timeline perspective, you know, generally we're closing in between 50 and 60 days. So we tell everyone, you know, when you're writing your contracts out there, leave yourself at least a 60-day close time. And, and in addition to that, you want to put in there at least a couple of extensions, um, you know, so that you can get a two-week extension or another two weeks if you need it. Typically, we don't need that, but you never know. Things can come up like COVID, you know, that throws the whole timeline off. Uh, so you, you, you certainly have to be, you know, aware of that uh, from a, a timeline perspective. Uh, and what was your, your follow-up questions with that, Zach? Well, it was more so the, also the requirements, like going, yes. going okay. into the project. Right. Like so multifamily is considered five units or greater, ideally in a perfect world, and, and both Fannie and Freddie have kind of gotten a little bit stricter on this over the last six or eight months, you know, with, with COVID because of the fact that you have, you know, a lot of tenants out there, not a lot, and it's far fewer than, than everybody was worried about six months ago or eight months ago when COVID started. Uh, but they, they really want the, the more experienced borrower. So in a perfect world, you should own three multifamily assets and at least one of those you've owned for two years or longer. So, you know, a lot of times with the syndication and and people that are just coming into the market and and kind of trying to buy their first multifamily, you know, if you don't have that experience, oftentimes you you really kind of need to partner up with somebody that does. Um, And and it's really not 
as difficult to do as it sounds. I mean, there, there's a lot of folks out there that if you're part of some network, uh, you know, that they're certainly willing to partner up with you and function as that experienced. So, so that's definitely, uh, you know, that, that's definitely the route to go. Now, at the, by the same token, if you, you know, own 50 multi or single families and duplexes and so forth in, you know, Miami, and you're looking to buy your first, you know, 10, 10 unit, we'll talk about it. You know, that's, it's an, it's an exception, but that's a very good case that we would preview with Freddie and more than likely get a green light to go ahead. But if you've never owned any investment properties or you've just owned, you know, the condo that you're renting there, you you know, somebody down the street and all of a sudden you want to go out and buy your first 30 unit property, you, you really need to have an experienced, you know, borrower with you. So that's from ownership and, and operation experience from, from a borrower qualification standpoint, financially and credit wise, Typically, we're looking for credits, and when I say we, it's Freddie or Fannie guidelines. You know, we're right. looking for you know credit scores in excess of 680, which is not that difficult. Uh, hopefully, no foreclosures, no uh, deed in lose or anything like that over the last seven or eight years. Uh, net worth ideally should be equal to the loan amount or higher, and that's that's a combination of all the borrowers in the deal. So if you got three guys that are coming in on the deal, combined net worth should equal the loan amount or greater. And you need to have at least nine months of liquidity. In other words, you still have nine months of PI left over, you know, after closing. Uh, you know, you're, you're not putting your very last, you know, dollar, you know, into the deal. So from an experience standpoint, uh, ideally, you know, Freddie and Fannie want that experience. If not, you need to partner up, or maybe there's a workaround if you have some other kind of related experience, credit-wise, income-wise, you know, as as just uh, as just mentioned. Hmm. Are, are these loans uh, full recourse? And, and also, I'm curious, what's usually the equity requirement? Is it a 20% down on a multifamily? I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, good question. So uh, the vast majority of every loan that we do with Fannie and Freddie is non-recourse to the borrower with what is called your standard carve-outs. So, and, and by the way, this is the case with any non-recourse loan that you have, you always have carve-out. In other words, it's non-recourse to you unless you do something that you are specifically not supposed to be doing according to the loan documents. You know, you can't, um, you, you can't get a multifamily loan on the property and then all of a sudden you know, tear it down and build a hotel on it. You know, that, you know that's something really wrong and, and you open right. yourself up to, 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 to liability. And what the lender's looking for, by the way, is when, we, when you talk about um, uh, you know, non-recourse recourse. If the lender has to come in and take the property, foreclose on it, you know, with a recourse loan, you are liable, you know, for any shortfall. And let's say you've got a $2 million loan and they're only able to sell the property for 1.8 million, you're liable for the other 200,000. That's what they're coming after you personally for. You know, with the non-recourse loans that we do with Fannie and Freddie, you're not liable in that instance. So you have no personal liability from that standpoint outside of those, those standard carve out provisions. So, you know, everything that we do is, is essentially non-recourse. And, and I think there was a follow-up, another piece of that. Right. Well. It was the, uh, usually the equity requirement. The equity. So uh, it, it depends on the market. So when Fannie and, and when Freddie specifically, and I, I keep referencing Freddie because their loan volume is much, much greater than Fannie on the small balance program. Um, when Fannie first rolled out their small balance program was it was in October 2014. And that program was far, far exceeded their expectations. In October 14, they were hoping to do uh, 700 million in 2015 under the program. They ended up doing 2.1 billion. 
far exceeded their expectations. The next year they did 4 billion. The next year they did 6 billion. I mean, it just really went far and far beyond their expectation. But the first major change that was made to the program was in May of 2015. Originally, you know, Freddie said, we'll do 80% on any loan anywhere. And then after about six months, they said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> so, you know, they created four different tiers of, of lending. Basically, you know, depending on the tiers is the maximum LTV you can get, you know, in a given market. So what they did was they used census data. And actually when you're taking the census, you identify yourself as a homeowner or a renter, uh, owner or rent. So they use census data to identify the renters in a given market. And if in that, that market, that MSA, you know, if there's, you know, zero to 15,000 renters, it's considered a very small market. In, if it's a little bit larger, 15 to 30,000 renters in a market, it's considered small, not very small, but small. Um, I'm sorry, uh, zero to 30,000, very small, 30 to 60,000, small. And if you're above 60,000, you know, you're in a larger market, uh, you, you're considered to be you know, in a standard market. So what Freddie deemed is these smaller markets, they deemed them to be a little bit more risky. Uh, than the larger markets. And, and by the way, out of those large markets, let's say, for example, like Houston, um, you know, they've identified about 10 or 12 top markets, the best of the best, so to speak, which is the names you would know, like New York, Miami, Dallas, LA, San Francisco, Portland, stuff. So those are the top markets. So when you're in a large market or a top market, your maximum LTV is 80%. Um, you know, for refinances, it's going to be 80, 75%. But if you're in a smaller market, you know, your max LTV is 75%. You know, on a refinance, it might be 70%. So, you know, because the market is smaller, they're only going to go up a, a, a little bit, not quite as high as, as being in a larger market. They, Freddie and Fannie deemed these larger markets to carry slightly less risk, you know, than smaller markets. It will give you, you know, maximum financing. You'll never get over 80%. Uh, that's that's the maximum you're going to get to. Now, if you're syndicating one of these deals, let's say you're able to get you know 80% financing right, and I'll tell you that's tough because what properties are selling for, you know, even though programmatically I can get you 80% in Dallas, usually the properties are selling for such a high price, there's only enough income to get you 73, 74, 75%. Interesting. So yeah, so but if you're putting together a deal, a syndication deal, you you might be the lead syndicator, you know, and you're the one putting it together. There is no hard and fast rule out of that, say, 20% down. You don't have to bring to the table, say, 5% of your money. Uh, you know, you may have 1% and you've got the other 19%, you know, in, in your syndication group. But there, there is no true hard number that, that you as a lead syndicator has to bring. And we've seen Freddie come back and say something, yeah, we do want to see this person bring 5% or whatever. It's rare, but it's happened. But there's no hard and fast rule as far as what percentage you know, the, the syndication manager has to, you know, to bring, you know, himself. So Daryl, I wanted to shift gears here just a bit. And I'm curious, so you, you haven't been both on the servicing side and the origination side, would you say there's any, I guess, I'm more so curious about do nots, but are there do's or do nots um, while uh, before the loan has been originated and while it's, you know, while the loan is kind of in force um, that you think is important to share with our listeners? You know, that's, uh, 
That's, that's actually, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, the thing to do, you know, prior to, you know, applying for, for a loan, I mean, if you're out there, they're looking at a property, you know, the, or you own a property. I mean, one of the things to identify is, is right now that's very important is, is occupancy. You, you really want to keep or buy the properties that are considered stabilized, 90 plus percent occupied. So, you know, that, that's what you should be looking for. Uh, you know, if you own the property, you, you, you really need to maintain good financials uh, because you're always going to need those going forward, whether you're you know, buying, you hopefully you, you're going to have financials, solid financials that you can share with your buyer. Or if you're the buyer, you need to see them so that we can size it up and give you a, a you know, a, a fair, you know, quote, you know, that we can stand behind in the market. Same thing post-closing, you know, as, as you own this property and, and it's being serviced, you know, you, you really do need to, to maintain the property itself, you know, and try not, not to have a lot of deferred maintenance going on because it's going to hurt you down the road. Uh, and at the same time, maintain a good set of books. I mean, a lot of these smaller properties, they're, they're owned, you know, by your, your mom and pop, you know, owner. And, you know, sometimes they don't even know how to use Excel, uh, you know, so, uh, and, and that's common and, and that's okay. But nevertheless, you, you need to maintain a, a really a good set of books ongoing. I, I, I'm looking at a deal in Miami right now where I can tell that the borrower just penciled stuff together for the last two years, you know, that, that he hasn't maintained his books. And, you know, we have to, to, we are truly partners with Fannie and Freddie. They are looking at us to, to do the loans, but at the same time, police for the lack of a better word, that, that we're dealing with a good property, good borrower, and, and, and nobody's trying to kind of, you know, pull a fast one, so to speak. So it's just, you just need to really post-closing, maintain your property, keep it up, you know, keep the occupancies up, maintain a good set of books, and that's going to come back and help you in the long run, whether you're seeking to refinance down the road or, or, or sell the property, you know, down the road as well. Also, too, up front, you, you kind of need to have your mindset of what's your game plan with this property. Am I going to hold it for four or five years and flip it, turn it, try to sell it, make you know, get my money and, and then some out of it? Or, hey, is this a long-term play? And, you know, I'm going to keep it for, for a long period of time. I'm going to pass it down to my kids or whatever. You know, that certainly goes into, you know, how you structure your financing, uh, you know, from, from the start. My job is, is really to, to help people get, you know, to get their loan. I mean, you know, we're, we're here to coach them along and guide them through the process from start to finish. You know, we're not getting paid to kill deals. You know, we're getting paid to, to make them work, you know, as, as long as, you know, we're, you know, you know, dealing with, with exactly what's put in front of us. That's, that's true and accurate and, and, you know, on point. I feel like th these, these questions are so vital uh, and a lot of investors scaling up, they might not always get the chance to talk to somebody like yourself, really the money side, because this is what gets deals done. You can find that well, these questions are it, so vital. It is. And here's the thing. And this is what I tell everybody, you know, is when you're out looking at a deal, the first thing you should do, I mean, if you're serious about it, is, is get from the seller, get from the listing agent, give me the rent roll, give me the historical financials. That's the very first thing you want to see, you know, and if they don't have it, they should have it handy right there. If they don't have it, you know, to give to you, it's time to move on to the next one. You know, the reality is, is everything to do with that property from what you pay for it to what we loan on it, it all comes down to that rent roll and financials. So, you know, we, you know, that's, that's the, if I'm going out to look at buying a property, 
yeah, it looks nice. Give me the rent roll and the financials. I want to know what the occupancy is. I want to know what the rents are. I want to know how the property's been performing over the last, you know, couple of years. You know, that should be at the ready. That's going to guide you, you know, in your offer, you know, how much, you know, debt you can put on the property and so forth. So for example, when I have, you know, clients that are out there looking, saying, you know, hey, I'm looking at this one property, um, I send me the rent roll and finance. Okay, well, we can lend you $4 million. Okay, well, you know, I know I, I want to put down 25%. That means I'm going to offer, you know, $5 million or 4.8 or whatever it is. You know, that's going to guide your, your whole offer, you know, throughout the process. And one of the things that we do as well, too, and, and this is, you know, kind of a little bit of art comes into it. When, when we're sizing up these deals, oftentimes, you know, you're, you look at the historical expenses, the way that the, the, the owner or the seller has operated the property. As a lender, we're normalizing a lot of those expenses. Fannie and Freddie are going to underwrite oftentimes to own a purchase. They're going to lean more on what an appraiser says is a market expense for repair and maintenance, for example. So, you know, you might have a seller who's, you know, who's, you know, on a, you know, 70 unit property whose R&M is $200 a door that he's running the property really lean or something. And that's great, but you're not going to, the loan's not going to be underwritten that way because an appraiser is going to come back and say, well, that's great. But normally for a property of this size in this market, it's $800 a door for R&M. So we're going to normalize those numbers to, and, and again, to come up with that final loan amount. At the same time, if you've got a seller who's, you know, the same property, you know, who's running their R&M at $2,000 a door because he's paying his kid to drive around the golf cart and drink beer and be a big shot all day long. You know, we're not going to count that against you. You know, we're going to normalize that back down to what it should be. So, you know, that's, but, but from the very get-go, when, when folks are looking at these properties, the first thing they need to be requesting is rent roll and financials and get it in the hands of your lender so the lender can tell you exactly what, you know, what they can do on the property because that's going to guide you in large part from there on out. That's amazing advice, uh, really is, especially for myself or anyone looking to scale up. Uh, I am curious, when when COVID hit and or scenarios like this, you've been doing this for a number of years and the market contracts and liquidity just completely shrinks up. How does that change LTVs and guidelines and how do you uh, handle that with some of your biggest clients? I'm curious personally, how those yeah. conversations work and how the market just shifts immediately. Well, it was really interesting when COVID hit because that, I mean, that came about really fast, okay? So, you know, we had, you know, tons of loans in process and, and, and you had immediately inside of hell a week, a lot of lenders, a lot of banks, a lot of, you know, large CMBS lenders, you know, immediately said, hey, we're, at, we're on hold, we're out. And what was really interesting about that is we got on a conference call with, with Freddie Mac and Freddie Mac said, look, he said, part, part of, you know, and this was the lead person for Freddie said, you know, one of our mandates is to provide not only affordable, you know, uh, loans for affordable housing, but it's pr to provide liquidity in the market in times like this. He said, we, everybody right now is running out of the building and running away from these properties. We're the ones that are running into it, mm -hmm. the firemen. Everybody's running out of the building. We're running into it. And that was Freddie's mindset. And that was really, really, really good on that part. Uh, you know, so they, they did tweak some things to, uh, to, to, to be cautious early on, especially in the early days of this. And, and right yeah. now, uh, because there was just so many unknowns. So how did underwriting change a little bit? Or how did, did, did Freddie take a look at that? And Fannie take a look at it? So, 
you know, they, they did tweak, you know, underwriting and sponsorship experience certainly became more and more important because you, you need to have that experienced sponsor out there who can manage, you know, in, in these uncertain times. But one of the things that they really did is they, they put into place initially a, a holdback. So when you're, you know, closing on the property, whether it's a purchase or refinance, and, and they've tweaked it since then, but originally with Freddie, for example, it was a, at closing, we're going to hold back your first 12 months of principal interest. Uh, so, you know, if you're buying, you got to bring a, a whole lot more money to the table for that initial 12 month holdback. Or if you're refinancing, we're going to hold on to you to that money. And that money is released back to you after all these lockdowns go away and everything. It's not we're not keeping it forever. Nobody wants to do that. But the good and, and a lot initially, a lot of folks gave pushback on that. But, you know, stop and think about it. It was actually a really good thing to do from the standpoint of this is very uncertain times. You've got a lot of tenants. You know, and, and most of the space that we lend in is, is affordable type housing, you know, where you've got a lot of school teachers, firefighters, waiters, waiters, whatever, you know, people at the mall who are living in these places. So, you know, those are the folks that, that have been sidelined with their jobs and so forth and, and could have issues paying rent. So the good thing about this holdback is it still allowed, you know, Fannie and Freddie to go out there and lend in the market because there's this cushion over here that can be tapped into if you have tenants that really stop paying, you know, or your cash flow really goes down, it allowed Freddie to continue to lend in this uncertain time um, and, and finance apartments and refinance apartments, whereas everybody else was heading for the hills. So the biggest things that we, we saw initially was that that 12 month holdback, um, you know, to which allowed Freddie the, the comfort and Fannie the comfort to go ahead and continue lending out there. Now they pulled back on that a little bit, depending on the LTVs, you know, that you're borrowing at. So it's not quite as onerous as it was from the start, uh, but it's still in place. And, and hopefully, you know, with the vaccine and as things normalize and so forth, you know, that that'll go away. But, you know, initially when most all the other lenders were headed for the hills and, and just they're out of the market totally, you know, Fannie and Freddie were, were they were there, you know, so which was really, you know, I mean, really, really good. They also allowed, you know, uh, you know, borrowers to go into forbearance if they needed to. Um, and, and a handful took advantage of that. Uh, but most, that most didn't need to. Freddie and Fannie, everybody was actually very pleasantly surprised that, that a high 90 plus percentage, everybody was still making their rent payments. So it was wow. far more less than, than everybody was originally concerned. Because, you know, at the start, you know, everybody was panicking. Nobody knew what to do. Uh, but Fannie and Freddie were there. Over, over the, the course of your career, um, what's the breakdown, uh, an estimate, of course, of um, refinances versus first-time finances or acquisition financing um, across all these different markets? Yeah, it, it depends. I mean, over the last, you know, 12 months, 2020, it was a, a much higher percentage of refinances just because the rates have been really, really low. Uh, so that brings a lot of folks out of the, the, the woodwork to refinance, even if they're paying a, a, a prepayment penalty because they wanna go ahead and lock into that low rate today while they are low. And especially when you have a change of administrations coming in, a lot of people don't know what to expect and, and you know, with the new administration, how that's gonna impact rates. So it's kind of, let's get it while get, you know, the rates are there. So it was a much higher percentage of refinances. Now, when rates go back up at some point, you know, then then that pendulum uh, pendulum will shift over to where you're going to have much more, you know, purchases as opposed to the refinances. So it's not necessarily geographically sensitive as it is, you know, rate sensitive, you know, in, in the market. 
So that's that's kind of you know, what, what we've seen um, you know over the last year. Low rates have made this a much yeah. higher percentage refinance. Okay, um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So, uh, what do you think is, is going to happen with the rates? Um, when do you think they'll start climbing again and, and get back to what we've been used to as a normalized level for the past you know four, five, six years? Yeah. You know, it, that, that is definitely speculation on my part, you know, and obviously I listen to the business channels and we have internal guidance, you know, as well. Uh, I think what you're hearing a lot now is with increased spending that may be coming out of Washington, that that's going to drive inflation and push rates higher. So, you know, if you're putting a gun to my head and say a rate's going to go up or down here, I'm going to say they're going to go up. Um, hopefully, however, I will say this with, with, with Fannie and Freddie, these securitizations have been going really, really well, uh, and that's, and that's kept rates low. So I think that we will see probably rates stay where they're at or gravitate upwards a little, but not as, I don't think we'll see a big spike in rates this year, simply because you've got a lot of demand, you know, for, uh, you know, for the, the, you know, the product out there for the, you know, the, the bond buyers are there mm-hmm. and they're really, or, or what's really keep these rates low, whether it's residential or, or, you know, multifamily or commercial. Daryl, I'm curious to, uh, to, to ask you, do you guys do a lot of development financing? And if so, does new construction financing, or is that underwritten? How is it underwritten differently than your regular multifamily acquisition syndication model? So I personally don't do much in the way of development lending at all. You know, CBRE, uh, you know, as a whole, we, we do, a, you know, a ton of multifamily and a co- ton of commercial lending. The multifamily is generally what we're funding on our balance sheet until it's securitized. Uh, you know, for, uh, for construction, certainly it depends on the type of property. You know, it's going to be harder to get construction financing, just like it's harder to get financing right now for a retail space or an office, you know, people aren't even going in the offices anymore, uh, as opposed to you know, multifamily. Absolutely. So it, a lot of that is certainly market driven. And you know, the, the construction financing, certainly HUD is always an option for larger construction projects. Uh, but you know, typically you're dealing more so with you know, a bank you know, in, in and around that market. You know, it's typically who's doing a lot of the construction financing. And really it's case by case, depending on which bank you deal with. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, construction, you know, lending has certainly over the last number of years has just pulled back as far as from a lot of cost, what you can get on these properties, but a, a, lar- a large part of it is just market, it's just market driven. You have certain markets that get overbuilt and you've got so many properties that are online to, you know, to where those units are going to come to market. You, you might not get the, uh, all the costs that you're going to get in the market that doesn't have as many units coming online. So I'm no expert on the construction side, but just you know, from from my experience, it's been it's, it's certainly market driven, um, you know, and, and depending upon you know, you know, the handful of banks that are going to lend in, in those particular markets, we can help with any of that as a company. Certainly, um, it's just not something that I personally get involved with very much. I am typically lending strictly on stabilized properties, and we're talking about stabilized. It's it's properties that are already leased up and occupied, uh, you know, in the market. So, or I will add, if you have those properties out there, they're not completely, you know, let's say they might be 70, 80% occupied, they need some repair, or whatever, we might do some bridge right. on it until we are, you know, and, and really improvement you know, into it until we can put permanent debt on it down the road when they are stabilized. Okay, so th- this, 
may not be quite of, uh, up your alley because I'm sure you're working mostly with fixed rates. Um, but do you work with floating rates ever? And if so, how do you think uh, uh, LIBOR is, or how do you think the rates will react when LIBOR is no longer around at the end of the year? Well, I don't, you know, the, I don't really work with, with as many floating rate programs out in the market right now. We've really already shifted over away from LIBOR over to the SOFI. Um, you know, but again, that's, that's just begun to, you know, to happen over the last number of months. So it, it's something that, that when that was rolled out, we immediately gravitated to it. Uh, I am certainly, you know, not the, the expert on that. And, and from a floating rate standpoint, you know, it, it's available out there. Me personally, with where rates are right now, if I can lock into a fixed rate for the next five or 10 years, I'm probably going to take that approach, uh, which dovetails on what I, we were talking about just a moment ago. I, I think overall we'll probably be in somewhat of a rising rate market. So I, I would not be as inclined to go with, with something that's going to be floating in the market when I can lock into a fixed rate in the low threes right now. I mean, I just don't see, I mean, we saw rates, you know, several months ago, the treasury go down so low, you know, where we've never seen it before. But at some point, that doesn't mean that, that your, the rate on your mortgage goes down to nothing. You know, there, there comes a point where you just can't go any lower, you know, and, and that's what actually happened here. There was a floor established, you know, be it's, you know, 50, 70, 90 basis points on the 10-year treasury, and that's what we were working off of. So I, I highly doubt that, that we're going to see, you know, rates drop back down to those levels again. And if anything, as mentioned before, I think that they'll probably be more inclined to move, you know, to the upside as opposed to downside. So if it's me personally, I, I'm, I'm advising, you know, lock into a, a fixed rate, you know, while they're low. Great advice. D Daryl, um, you know, you've done so much lending over the last decade. What in your experience have you seen kills deals? And what in your experience have you seen makes a great operator of these multifamily yeah. projects? Well, I'll tell you one of the things that I've seen that, that kills a lot of deals and especially on purchase transactions. You know, oftentimes you will have a seller go into contract on a property and all of a sudden, like, I'm in the contract, I'm done. You know, they quit managing their property. You know, I had, you know, a deal in Tulsa probably three years ago where it went under contract. The site agent went out on maternity leave, which, you know, fine with that. They didn't bring anybody in to replace that person. You know, collections went down. It changed the whole scope of the loan, so much so that the buyer went back and renegotiated on the property. So, a lot of times what we see on these purchase transactions is, is sometimes the seller kind of checks out, you know, once that, that property goes under contract and, and, you know, we sit here and say, you know, this is, this is not the time to check out. So what we've actually been doing to kind of help with that is, is to give a little bit of guidance when you're writing your contracts on the property. You know, one of the things to put in there is you need to maintain collections of X amount, or you need to maintain your occupancy of X amount you know, as we're going through underwriting, just because it's under contract, you know, doesn't mean that it's time to, uh, to not continuing managing the property. So right. on purchase transactions, you know, that, that's really what we see, you know, more often than not. Um, I will tell you <coughs> what kills, you know, what kills a, a number of other deals is, is quite frankly, is, is, is over-promising, you know, you know we, we, I, I, I see this a lot in the market where you, you have lenders out there that 
they want the deal and yes, I can get you this no problem. That's gonna be no problem and so forth. And it's either due to a lack of experience that these individuals are saying that, or they know full well what they're saying. And then 30 days or 40 days down the road, well, we can't do that. This came up or the appraisal came in low or you know, Freddie or Fannie's making us do this and that. And, and quite frankly, it's something that a good lender, you know, should know better. So, you know, we see a lot of that in the market where it's just, you know, over-promising just to get the deal off the street, get the deposit, get you knee deep into the process to where when, when they drop the other shoe, you, you're, you're, you're in too deep and you can't go anywhere else. Whereas what we try to do is, is, you know, we sit here and say, this is exactly what we're looking at. This is what we can do. Now, by chance, if something, you know, changes or if this gets better, you know, we can get more proceeds or we can do this. But we are truly trying to lay out a realistic path of exactly what to expect and not promise some pie in the sky numbers, you know, that's just never going to happen because that's what you want to hear. So, you know, that that's, uh, you know, we see that come up a lot, you know, on, on a number of the deals out in the market. I hate it. You know, because a lot of times the buyer or the owner wants to hear kind of what they want to hear. But in the end, in the end, really, every lender should almost end up in the same place, you know, because the numbers kind of are what they are. Um, so, right. you know, it's just hopefully, you know, the, the lender you choose to work with is being candid and is experienced enough to, to point you in the right direction from the get go. I think that's a great point just overall. And I, I mean, I think you think about it in business, but with this topic specifically in just managing expectations, because when expectations are off, you know, there's kind of like a disconnect between parties. So I think that's, you know, awesome. What's the biggest, I guess, um, in terms of, you know, managing expectations, how do you get ahead of that, um, that curve and, and not try to um, you know, take people down that rabbit hole if it's, if something inevitably isn't going to work, if like a given deal isn't going to work, um, how do you best manage that? Sure. So here's what we do. We do a couple of things with that. First of all, as, and as, and as an experienced lender, you know, we know what's going to work, what's not going to work. And if we get into a gray area, what a good lender should do up front is, is get the details and preview that deal with Fannie and Freddie. So for example, you know, you mentioned experience earlier. So if you have somebody that doesn't fit exactly into the experience box that, that, that Fannie or Freddie wants, but they've got some other experience and so forth, but you're into a little bit of gray area, what we're going to do up front is we're going to, to, to put all the information together on this loan up front, and we're going to put it in front of Fannie and Freddie and preview it. We, there's a particular form to, to pre-flight these deals with. So we want to get that, that sign off if you're not, you know, squarely in, in, in the middle of the box so that we know moving forward, we're good to go on this aspect. You know, so we should be able to identify, a good lender should be able to identify up front if you're, you know, if there's an issue, if you're squarely inside the box or if there's something about this loan that doesn't fit the metric so that we can deal with that up front. We want to get that hurdle crossed before we engage third parties, appraisals, credits, and, and start spending your money. So we don't want to go down that road, you know, until we get these issues signed off on. So that's, we really want to, to kind of pre-flight these deals up front. You know, if, if there's something that, that, that's not squarely inside the box, that's what a good lender does. And, and a good lender should be able to identify immediately, hey, this is a potential area we need to get addressed. Or this is, you know, something that doesn't squirt fairly inside the box. I had a conversation with Freddie before getting on this call, you know, where we're putting together some non-contiguous parcels. 
and you know a couple of them are single units that are adjacent to multi-units but it doesn't fit squarely inside the box so we put it in front of freddie and said what do you take a look this is my thought give me your thought or you know are we good to go to move forward now so from a managing expectation standpoint, one of the things that we do early on in the process, you know, we do a kickoff call on every loan. And what I do is we send out and we share with them, this is our timeline, you know, throughout the loan. This is my responsibility. These are yours responsibilities and so forth and so on. So, you know, if we can stick to this, this process, then, then we're going to get from application to closing in a very seamless manner. But one of the things that we point out and we really stress is, you know, we're dependent upon you as the borrower, you know, to kind of hold up your end, you know, of, of the transaction. So, you know, the, there's, there's several things that really slow us down and create problems when doing the, the loan process. One of is, you know, borrowers or sponsors not getting their due diligence into us. I mean, we need to have financials or PFS or schedule of real estate or P&Ls for the property or an updated rental, rent rolls and so forth. We need to have them at certain points you know, during the, during the process. And if you're not able to deliver those to us in that particular timeline, then our timeline gets shifted. So we're, we're really trying to say right up front, this is the process. This is what we need for you to do. This is what, you know, we're doing on our end. And if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, we're going to make our timeline. One of the things, and I stress this as well too, is immediately reach out and, and engage your insurance you know, company that you're going to have to insure the property. Uh, do that today. And there's certain, you know, Freddie and Fannie guidelines that you have to adhere to relative to insurance. We send out the document, share this with your insurance agent and do it now. Because I will tell you nine times or 99 out of 100 times when we fail to meet a closing date is because we're waiting on the insurance agent. So you need to engage those people immediately. And, you know, our insurance analyst internally works with that insurance agent to make sure they supply compliant coverage to us. And there's constant communication back and forth. But when my guy is starting not to get what he needs, I start reaching out to the bar. Hey, I need for you to call your agent and nudge him along. You know, he's being non-responsive. He's not getting this back to us. Or, you know, sometimes this sense of urgency just, just there is no sense of urgency with insurance folks sometimes. I don't know why that is, but that is the common denominator in, in most all deals that, that, that fail to close on time is getting finalized compliant insurance. So hopefully we avoid any of these surprises by A, this is the process from start to finish. This is what I need for you to do. This is what we're going to be doing and so forth and so on. And at the same time, if there's something doesn't fit squarely in the box, we as a lender should, should deal with that upfront so it's not going to rear its head down the road and create a problem uh, when you're, you're, you're too far in to, uh, to address it, you know, uh, accordingly. Daryl, I, I just want to say you really are a wealth of knowledge. And I think anybody listening to this, whether they're on the small residential side or larger multifamily, uh, almost everything you said in terms of the processes, they apply to the smaller, um, you know, process and systems that you're going to go through with your lender, hard money or otherwise. So anyone listening to this, I mean, it really is one of the most important conversations we've had. Um, I'm really curious to ask, where can our listeners reach out uh, if they're a multifamily investor looking to scale up? Can they reach out directly to you? Is there anywhere, anyone at CBRE they should contact? Yeah, they should contact me. So, yeah. <laughs> so 
again, as, as mentioned before, I mean, certainly we, we do the direct business and, and we welcome that opportunity. So, you know, I, I tell everybody, you know, always feel free to reach out to me, shoot me an email or give me a call. I, you know, I, my phone never gets turned off, you know, and I, I take calls, you know, constantly. Uh, I try to deal with every single email that comes in. So I've got a fresh slate, you know, the morning you know, when I go into the office. So, you know, I'll be glad to give my contact information out when you guys are ready. And, and I encourage folks to, to reach out to me. But one of the things that I, I kind of dovetail back on, if you're, if you're already looking at properties out there and want some specific comments relative to a specific property, get the rent roll, get the, the historical, you know, p for the property. Right now we're working off basically just 2020 p If it's June, I'm gonna say get 2020 in year to date. Uh, or just a T12, but sometimes your smaller properties, the seller doesn't maintain a T12, they, they might not even know what that is, and that's fine. So we get a last year and a year to date. Um, but, you know, and I say, shoot me an email, you know, hey, I'm looking at this property, you know, it's XYZ property in Dallas, you know, uh, thinking about $5 million purchase price, here's the rent roll and financials, what can you guys lend on? And I turn those things around within 24 hours, so we have everything. And if you don't have it the next day, you need to call me because for some reason it slipped through my, you know, the cracks. So we, you know, we seek to turn everything around, quotes, everything back in, in within 24 hours. And what I do is I look at these and, and I said, you know, hey, this is what we can lend on. Oh, by the way, you know, what's hurting this deal right now? And this is what we see a lot right now is, okay, we, our bad debt numbers are really high or, you know, you've got a seller here that's, you know, the utilities are really high and they're not getting much in the way of rubs or, you know, credits back from, from, you know, from the tenants relative to utilities or, you know, we kind of take a look at everything and see kind of what's the, what's the good part, what's the bad part, you know, kind of, kind of driving or, or you oftentimes you'll look at these deals and say, Hey, there's, there's a ton of utility expenses, but not a lot of rub income. This is maybe an opportunity for you to go in there and, you know, initiate some rubs and increase your NOI, you know, altogether. So we're, we don't spend a ton of time on that, but nevertheless, you know, as I look at, I'm looking at the financials and I, I see what's the problem and what's not, you know, we, we share that on the comments that, that we send back. So yeah, uh, welcome the opportunity to, that's, I mean, candidly, that's how I get paid yeah. is to loans and, and we welcome the chance to, to look at as many deals. We're not going to do them all because uh, you're not going to buy them all. Uh, but when you do go under contract or purchase or refinance, we'd like to be the first person you talk to. And we're definitely going to include your email in the summary notes. Uh, if anything, this conversation, this podcast has taught every multifamily investor who we've had on and who are, who's listening that your lender is your best friend. You want Daryl to be your best friend. So we're definitely going to have your email in the show notes. Appreciate you. Well, and that's the, you're right. I mean, the lender is, that's part of your team. Now I, I have a number of folks that I work with that I've done multiple, multiple loans with, and they have a team. They have their same insurance guy. He's part of their team. It's somebody they found out they can rely on and get good rates and so forth. They've got, you know, closing attorney, the same person. That's part of their team. They come back to me. I'm the lender part of their team. You know, they built a reliable team, um, you know, and they're buying in certain markets. So they're still engaging the same third party property manager. You know, so the, the good, you know, buyers, the, uh, you know, the operators out there, they have built and pulled together a team that they can rely on. Um, so, and, and we're the lender piece of that puzzle. And, and again, you know, because we do so much more than, than anybody else out in the market, you know, there's, there, you know, there's, I don't think there's anyone that does a better job. Again, 
with any of these properties, we're, we're really working off of the numbers. The reality is, is in the end, and there's some nuance to this, but really in the end, we should all end up with the same number in the end. You know, uh, but a lot of times you know, we can see certain things and say, hey, you can and, and try to guide and coach and these things need to be addressed. So yes, we might be able to deliver a little bit more proceeds than somebody else down the road. But in the end, we should all be in the same spot, more or less. The difference is, is who's going to get you from point A to point B, you know, without, you know, putting you through the ringer or who's able to identify the potential pitfalls or problem areas before they come up. And I just, I don't think that anybody does a better job of what we do in that regard. Well, we, we appreciate you coming on. Um, we've taken up a, quite a bit of your time, but this was fantastic. Um, and uh, certainly a lot of information packed in here uh, that, like Zach said, is relevant to every level, um, you know, whether you're working on small single family or, or larger multifamily deals. So um, this is, yeah, uh, an incredible uh, talk here um, and certainly will be used in, in all of our practices. So thank you very much. Guys, it's, it's really been my pleasure. I, I tell you, I, I, I welcome the chance to get on and, and speak, you know, anytime the need arises and 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 I will, I'll share a funny story. I, I tell this story It's and I get a kick out of it. I remember when I was... I, when I fresh out of college, I worked at Merrill Lynch down in South Florida. And I, we, the thing back in the day was to kind of give these speaking engagements. And I remember I did my very first one and I had my whole speech written out on a legal pad, you know, magic marker and so forth. And I, and I get up, you know, to give my speech and I'm, I'm like, I'm in early twenties and you got a crowd of people. And I'm really nervous, you know, and I'm up there trying to give my speech and I'm starting to sweat and the sweat's going down on my magic marker and it's fading all of my notes and I can't read, <laughs> I can't read what I'm saying. And I'm dying of thirst and I wanna pick up my glass of water and have a drink, but I know I'm gonna shake the water out of the glass. So, <laughs> but now, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older now and, and, and a little bit more comfortable in that. So I, I tell you, I really welcome the chance to get on and kind of share what we do, you know, at CBRE and, and my team does relative to multifamily lending. And we really welcome the chance to, to, to talk and work with each and every one of, of, of you know, the folks in the network. So I stress, don't, don't hesitate to shoot an email or give a call. Definitely. Thank you, Daryl. We'll certainly take you up on that. And that is today's episode. If any of you current and future investors want us to talk about any specific real estate topics they're interested in or to ask us questions like, Jesse, how do you get your hair to stay so perfect? Nate, what's your favorite shaving cream? Feel free to email us directly at carriedinterestpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, that's carriedinterestpodcast at gmail.com. I'm telling you the Google sponsorship is well on its way. Please tune in next time for more real estate knowledge. Thanks for listening to Carried Interest. Peace out and go build some equity.